This morning uh, and over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the first advent of Christ in light of its fulfillment from some Old Testament prophecies, specifically the prophet Isaiah. And this will be a bit different from our normal exposition of texts, firstly because we will not be walking sequentially through a book of the Bible as we typically do, but rather uh, passages in Isaiah uh, where there are messianic prophecies. And secondly, uh, that we will study these a bit more theologically than narratively in our approach. This approach does not diminish the worship that we should have together since we are studying about the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which of course engenders our hope for his second coming, his second advent, in which we also should rejoice. Uh, This morning we're looking at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, uh, sprinkled throughout the row in front of you, uh, there are some copies of God's Word, the English Standard Version, which is what uh, I preach from. And uh, if you don't own your own Bible, we would love for you to take that as a gift uh, from us. We want you to have God's Word. But if you grab that pew Bible, it's page 535, Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read our passage for this morning. Pray... Talk a bit about how we ought to study the Old Testament, then give a bit of background to the book of Isaiah, and then work our way into our study. So we've got a lot of heavy lifting this morning on the front end of this study for Advent, and so we want for you to recognize that, and we're going to ask the Lord to help us here in a minute because it is a lot of heavy lifting, uh, but we want our hearts to rejoice in these truths this morning. So Isaiah chapter 7 And in verse 1, if you're able to, would you please stand with me as I read the Word of God aloud and as you follow along. Again, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Isaiah writes, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. you got to love that imagery. Verse 3, And the Lord Yahweh said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherah Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Razin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the sons of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord Yahweh God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord Yahweh spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord Yahweh your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask 
and I will not put the Lord Yahweh to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, and he shall eat curds and honey. And when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord Yahweh will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You may be seated. That is the word, uh, reading of God's word. Both We've heard it read in the New Testament earlier and the Old Testament. And may it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud. Would you join me now in prayer? Lord, indeed, as we speak of things that are sacred this morning, we recognize, Lord, that we need to be so careful. And as we study them, Lord, we ask that your Spirit, who inspired these words in the original autograph, uh, would now also attend to our time, uh, Lord, in a special and specific way to illuminate our eyes to an understanding of these truths. So that, Lord, we might rejoice in what we receive by the means of grace of preaching this morning. And I pray by your same spirit that you would convict those who do not know you who are in our midst. that They would come to know you as a result of the gospel preached. And Lord, we desire that we would rejoice in you this morning, even as we think of coming to your table at the end of our time in the word. Prepare our hearts for that as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we approach this study this morning, and as we look at it over the next weeks, we're going to be looking at several passages in um, Isaiah's prophecy. One of the things I wanted to do at the outset is talk to you about how we should study the Old Testament as New Testament Christians. And so I'm going to give you a few points of that in Um, These aren't in your notes. I can give these to you uh, later if you would like to request them, just as helpful ways to think about studying the Scripture. Number one, we must remember that the Bible is a unity. The Bible is a unity. Though there is diversity in human authors, there is one divine author over both the Old and New Testament. Therefore, we begin with theological presuppositions, such as, The Bible is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative. We also need to view the Bible as it presents itself as a canonical, progressive revelation. In other words, as we read the Bible from left to right, God continues, this was his his plan, Um, this is his way of doing it, he continues to open up more and more information as we go from the Pentateuch into the writings, into the prophets, etc., um, and it blossoms into fullness into, in the New Testament. So it's canonical, the whole canon, Old and New Testament together, unfolding truth to us as God permits that. There are things like types and antitypes, prophecies and fulfillment, shadows and substance. This is the language that the Bible uses about itself. Types and antitypes. Prophecies and fulfillments, shadows and substance. Matthew Barrett summarizes for us in this way, 
Quote, although a text is situated at a particular point in history, nevertheless it reaches beyond that historical parameter due to the progressive nature of Revelation. As the canon builds and God's redemptive story unfolds, what was dim before now shines bright. So there is a progress in Revelation, end quote from uh, Matt Barrett, by the way. Then we recognize, as we think about things in this way, we're just talking methodology now. Some of you are already starting to fall asleep, and I see your eyes, you're drooling, but please hang with me here, okay? This is very important. We are hemmed in by two guardrails as we think about what I just said. The two guardrails are the analogy of Scripture and the analogy of faith. The analogy of Scripture is the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. There is no contradiction in God's Word because there is one divine author who superintends what the human authors write. Think of Second Peter 1, 20 and verse 21. It says there, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you see, God superintends... Uh, over and above the human author, not that the author doesn't have an intent, but, but God is weaving this together. For no prophecy, Peter says, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke, not, not, not that God didn't use their wills, it wasn't their will alone, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, what are the mechanics of that? How does that work? I'll tell you my, uh, my qualified PhD in theology answer. I don't know. But God does. And God's the one who knits it all together. So that's the analogy of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. There's also another uh, guardrail, which is the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is birthed from the analogy of Scripture in that there is a unity of doctrine that guides us. So if there's no contradiction from Scripture to Scripture... The, the, the doctrines or the theology that we derive from the Scripture also cannot contradict. Therefore, we have a rule of faith that helps guide us as we study. I mentioned things earlier like the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. Uh, the Trinity, the Trinitarian theology of the Scriptures helps guide us through. So that, as Jude 3 says, there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. So there is a collection of doctrine, and we talked about this a few uh, months ago, a couple months ago, about the idea of first, second, third order doctrines, and orthodoxy is what we're talking about here. That guides us. We cannot come to the Scriptures and say, well, here it seems as if Jesus isn't God, because the rule of Scripture and the rule of faith says, no, Jesus is God. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we come to the Scriptures, because There are these two guardrails the Scriptures themselves give us. In addition to that, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our guide into all truth. We just talked about this in in John 16. He illuminates the understanding of of the believer and all believers. So the Holy Spirit is our guide into all truth. And so He... Uh, illuminates the understanding of the believer and all believers. So why do I add that and all believers? Because we also remember that he has illuminated the minds of those of us before us. 
We do not study the Bible in a vacuum, but in a sense in the community of the saints. Therefore, though the Bible is our final authority for faith and practice, we find the writings of previous believers helpful in our efforts of interpretation stretching back to the early church and forward. And so therefore, those are, that's the way in which we ought to study the Scriptures as whole, but also the Old Testament. Those are the things that are going to be guiding. I'm not going to do this every Sunday, tell you that over again. You need to keep those things in mind as we do this. And I'm also not going to do what I'm about to do, which is give you a short introduction to the book of Isaiah, which is necessary for us as we dive into this. So the late Warren Wearsby was a masterful uh, summarizer. He summarized and outlined the Bible content. And so his description of the ministry of Isaiah is helpful in giving us a brief overview of Isaiah's prophetic ministry to help set the historic context for us. So I'm quoting from Wearsby a lot here. He writes, the name Isaiah means salvation of the Lord. And salvation or uh, deliverance is the key theme of Isaiah's book. He wrote concerning five different acts of deliverance that God would perform. One, the deliverance of Judah from the Assyrian invasion in chapters uh, 36 through 37, which we touch on in chapter 7 today. Uh, secondly, the deliverance of the nation from Babylonian captivity, chapter 40. Thirdly, the future deliverance of the Jews from the worldwide dispersion among the Gentiles. And I would add, this implies the inclusion of the Gentiles in that gathering in chapters 11 and 12. And then the deliverance of lost sinners from judgment in chapter 53, which will be our last study uh, in this series uh, the day after Christmas. And the final, fifthly, the final deliverance of creation from the bondage of sin when the kingdom is established, chapters 60 and so on. End quote from Warren Wiersbe. Isaiah prophesies after the divide of the kingdom. So the, the kingdom has been divided and though he prophesies about the captivity of Israel, the northern kingdom composed of ten tribes, his main focus is upon Judah. And the reason for that is because Judah is the line of who? Messiah, right? Jesus, right? So the lion of Judah. Uh, the period of time where we pick up in Isaiah is the reign of Ahaz, where we pick up today in chapter 7, who is... Um, he is shaking, uh, I'm sorry, he's co-regent with his father Jotham, and it is Ahaz who ends up leading Judah into slavery with Assyria eventually. So again, uh, Wiersbe's uh, summary is helpful. Quote, Isaiah's, uh, Isaiah opens his book with a series of sermons denouncing sin, the personal sins of the people in chapters 1 through 6, and the national sins of the leaders in chapters 7 through 12. In these messages, he warns of the judgment and pleads for repentance. The prophets Amos and Hosea were preaching similar messages to the people of the northern kingdom at the same time Isaiah was preaching this to the southern kingdom, warning them that time was running out, end quote. However, in the midst of this exposure of sin of the people and of the leadership, we find hope in a vision and a prophecy. In chapter 6, we see Isaiah's famous vision of the throne room of God. In this encounter, Isaiah is made aware of his sinfulness as he encounters the holiness of God and is told that his sins are atoned for, it says there. 
His sins are forgiven and atoned for when the angel comes, remember, and touches his lips with the hot coal. says, your sins have been atoned for. But Isaiah recognizes in the presence of the holiness of God that his sins need to be atoned for. According to John's gospel, it is best to understand that Isaiah has seen a vision of the pre-incarnate eternal son of God. John chapter 12 and verse 41, he says, he says this having seen the son. And it is against this backdrop that Isaiah makes his prophecy concerning the coming of this eternal son. So keep in mind the context, Isaiah 6, he sees a vision of the throne room where sits, sitting on the throne, uh, robes filling the um, throne room, angels crying, holy, holy, holy. His recognition of his need of the forgiveness of his sins in the presence of the holiness of God. That is the backdrop where Isaiah in chapter 7 speaks of the coming of this son. Here's the main point. It's written for you in the back of your worship folder. If you happen to have grabbed one of those or if you're checking in through the live stream, it's been sent to you via email. The main point is this, God's covenant to provide grace through the Messiah is the hope for Israel and the world. God's covenant to provide grace through the Messiah is the hope for Israel and the world. I want us to see this morning four features of the Messianic prophecy found in this passage. Four features of the Messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 7. First, we see the context of the prophecy the context of the prophecy. In what context does God through Isaiah give us this prophecy? And of course, the, the main part of that prophecy is Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We're very familiar with that, but what is the context for that? Once again, we think about what happened in Isaiah chapter 6, and then what happens in what we read in our passage. Isaiah sees a vision of the eternal Son in the throne, and then gives a prophecy of the one that's coming in the context of a king who is fearful of impending coercion from foreign kings to join them in seeking to do battle against Assyria. That's what's going on here. Um, Ahaz is Frightened, the people are frightened because they know that these two armies are going to come and seek to overtake them in, in a sense and, and, and coerce them to go up against Assyria. Isaiah is told to go to Ahaz and for Ahaz to ask for a sign from Yahweh, which would prove God's protection of Judah. But Ahaz refuses to do that. Notice what it says um, in, in the... Um, Verses 7, 8, and 9 of of chapter 7. Thus says the Lord God, Concerning this idea of them coming in and conquering, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a, a, a people. And God here is prophesying what's going to happen to these nations. And then... The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That's an interesting way to end that. And what is God, in a sense, predicting here about Ahaz? Ahaz is not going to be firm in faith. 
In fact, what we know about Ahaz is that he is not a good king, unlike his father. He is a king who continues, like other kings of Judah and Israel, to lead them astray from Yahweh their God. So, of course, he is not, he is not standing firm in his faith. He has not led the people in firmness of faith. So, it's almost as if God anticipates, he is God after all, what Ahaz's response is going to be here. Ahaz refuses to ask God for a sign. And, and, and God says, anything from the depths of Sheol to heaven. Ahaz could have said, like God did at one time, okay, Lord, make the um, sun stand still for an hour. Anything in the heavens, right? Um, give me a vision of your glory, as Moses asked for in the wilderness. And God would have done it. But Ahaz, in his unbelief and in his fear, refuses. Therefore, God says he would give a sign. And there are a few ways that folks have interpreted Isaiah 7.14. Some, let me just preface this by saying every conservative scholar and Christian has understood that Isaiah 7.14 relates somehow to the Messianic promise because Matthew then repeats it. We're going to look at that together again this morning. But there are several ways in which they understand how does this work itself out in Ahaz's time. Well, some believe that this is a kind of a near and far fulfillment. In other words, something happens in the, in, in the time of Ahaz that sort of is an echo or a type of Messiah later when he is born into the world. There was, there was one born in the time of Isaiah that was a type of Christ. Well, this is not beyond the possibility in light of other Old Testament prophetic types like Joseph or Boaz, ways that we can see messianic type um, uh, shadows in those kinds of people. However, if we look carefully, and that's mainly what it is when I talk about there being multiple ways of translating, it's always about, is it this person's son or is it this person's son? Is it, is it a son from uh, Isaiah? Is it a son from Hezekiah? Is it, a, is it some, someone in Ahaz's family? It, it's always in conservative sort of uh, th- uh, theology and, and, and commentaries. Someone who is born as a type. However, I think if we look carefully at the prophecy, it seems that we can actually see this as a single fulfillment in Messiah. If we consider that Isaiah is calling Ahaz and thus Israel to remember God's covenant. Let me just footnote for a second and say, I'm not saying there aren't times where there are types and anti-types or shadows that turn to substance where something happens near and then later far there's a fulfillment. But I think in this case that, that God is actually jumping ahead while he's also referring backwards. And I think you'll understand what I mean when I say that. Let's unpack this a bit more in our second point. Secondly, the content of the prophecy. The content of the prophecy. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Ahaz is stubbornly refusing to ask for a sign. So it is the Lord who will give a sign. Now, a sign doesn't necessarily mean that there is a need for contemporary fulfillment. Uh, that, that's not necessarily the case. A sign 
points to something. The sign seems to be prophecy and fulfillment is certain in the future. And I would argue that the context makes that clear. It is not a near-far fulfillment. Uh, Think, if you will, though, of um, the way in which this works itself out many times in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We're going to reference that in in a minute. But um, the promise of the seed that would crush the head of the serpent who would bruise the seed's heel. What does Eve say when she births Seth? I have got a man. And there's an idea there that she thinks, this is the seed. And in some sense that is true because the seed would be carried through um, eventually Abraham and, and through Israel. And that would not occur without the birth of Seth. But the the point being that she thought, this is it. So I'm not saying it's outside the possibility that someone thinks in Isaiah's time, this must be the fulfillment of that prophecy. But I think that this has a greater fulfillment. The sign. What are you to look for concerning the woes of Israel in what, uh, or in Judah, really, in what is stated here in Isaiah 7. What is it? What is the sign? A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she co- shall call his name Emmanuel. Considering the progress of Revelation from Genesis to this point, what do we know about God's covenants, God's promises? There is a promise, and I would say a covenant, contained, as I mentioned, within the curse of Genesis 3. Specifically, verse 15 tells us that though Satan will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, the seed will crush the head of the serpent, the head of Satan. From here, we think about the covenant with Abraham. That through his seed, the nations would be blessed. So we move from Adam and Eve to particularity of Israel as the ones who bear the seed in the womb of their people, specifically Judah, who is blessed by his father in Genesis chapter 49 and told he is a lion and that there is a scepter of rule that is given to him. Again, not seen in Judah's day. But progressively, we see the picture unfolding a bit more and the covenant with David is made who is in the line of Judah, who does raise up to be the king. This covenant is made with David and he is told that his throne will be forever through one who will come and reign. So we've progressed from seed promise in Genesis 3, seed promise to Abraham in in the birthing of the nation, the seed would come through Israel, um, and and then through Judah specifically, this idea of the the, the scepter being raised up. Um, And who's that scepter in a near sense? It's David. But David is told, your kingdom will be forever. The prophets then give us further revelation, such as God establishing a new covenant with Israel, which would come through God's presence in them. And then we have something like what God through Isaiah gives here, a glimpse of the means by which the seed, the Messiah, will come into the world. And so therefore, Isaiah 7 and verse 14, within the context, is part of the progress of the revelation which God gives Salvation, being made right with God, is always by grace through faith. 
It is always God's gracious act appropriated through the gift and conduit of faith in what God has promised. For the Old Testament believer, it is somewhat in shadows, but progressively light shone in. And here is a further indication of that. God is going to miraculously bring this one who is called Emmanuel. And we must not miss the significance of this name, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, this time of year, we sing this, do we not? We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And we sing about Emmanuel, God with us. But what does it mean? Well, you just understood it as you heard that song in your head. Emmanuel, God with us. What does this mean? The triune God is omnipresent, isn't he? He's always with us. So what does it mean that God is with us? What is true in the Garden of Eden? God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. God was present with them in a particular way that is not true after the fall After sinning, Adam and Eve were cast away from God's presence. And those who walked with God, even those who would say, use that same terminology, those who walked with God like Enoch and Abraham and Noah and others, it's differently than what was true in the garden because now sin has entered into the world and it is not the same. Here in the pages of Isaiah's prophecy, the promise of God with us is given. As Edward Young says in his commentary, the very, quote, the very presence of the child brings God to his people. And then paraphrasing Calvin, he says, the name cannot be applied to anyone else who is not God. Amen. The evidence of this being a sign that points to the coming of Christ as a far fulfillment without need of a type is the timing that Isaiah gives here in verses 16 and 17. Look at it again. For the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that day Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In other words, the calamity that Ahaz is worried about will not even be on the radar when Messiah comes. And this is the covenantal promise to which Ahaz and Israel should look. Why do they fear? Why do they fear? Well, specifically, Ahaz and Judah, in the moments of Ahaz's reign, are not trusting God. They are not believing God. And when the king speaks, he speaks on behalf of the people. And what has the king said? I'm I'm not going to ask for a sign. I refuse to do this. Stubbornly refuse to do that. And God says, fine. I will give you a sign. And that sign looks backwards to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And 
unfolds and blossoms into what God says in Isaiah chapter 7. Before, it was a seed understood to be a person, certainly. Then, a seed of Israel through Abraham. He's given a nation to be a part of. A nation that God creates and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And what does that nation continually do? They continually disobey. They continually misrepresent Yahweh to the world. Culminating in things like what Ahaz does here. I don't trust the Lord. I'm not going to ask for a sign. And then as God continues to unfold that revelation, in this prophecy we get a name. Emmanuel. God with us. And as it unfolds, we begin to understand what it means for Messiah to come. As we've studied the Gospel of John together, what have we seen is the disbelief of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Not, you can't be the Messiah necessarily, but he also calls himself one who is equal with who? God. It says right here, one is going to be born, and his name means God with us. They miss it. Well, things of the Spirit and of God are spiritually discerned, and they did not have that spiritual discernment. God is showing once again his covenant faithfulness to Israel. And yet, they do not look to that. And by the way, this is why Matthew, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 1, where we did our scripture reading this morning. This is why Matthew can use this prophecy in the way that he does in Matthew chapter 1. Look at verse 21, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, reading down through verse 23. She, that is Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Pause for a moment. Further revelation, right? His name shall be called Jesus, or in the Hebrew, Yeshua, Joshua, For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the... I went too fast over that. Let me slow down. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Which prophet? Isaiah. Isaiah, chapter 7 and verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. First, we take notice of the theological weight of this statement concerning who is the coming one. Previously, in the context, we see that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. This is evidenced in verses 18 and 20. As this is miraculous, we understand that this is no normal birth. Because the second person of the Trinity is eternally existing, uh, is an eternally existing divine person. He is by virtue of not being born of the seed of man, the Son of God. And so there is a miracle that takes place, conception by the Holy Spirit, 
Mary's womb, she is found with child, miraculously. No sin in him. And he is the eternal son of God. However, at the same time, in the incarnation, being born of a woman, he truly becomes man. He puts on humanity. We see two aspects of this purpose here in in these verses in Matthew. Number one, his name will be called Jesus, Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. Notice the particularity of this. He will save his people from their sins. What does this mean? It means that all God intends to save, he will save. Not one sheep will be lost. There is not one person whom Jesus intends to save that he will not save. He will save his people from their sins. Second, he is the fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. So in these names, in the name of Jesus, there's the purpose of his incarnation. In Emmanuel, there's a description of who he is and how he is able to save. Very God of God, as the creed says. Very light of light. And yet, in the incarnation and from that time forward, truly human. As the Second London Confession summarizes well, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Amen and amen. It's rich theology. Of the incarnation. This is but a further opening of the flower of progressive revelation in the midst of Isaiah here. In the midst of Judah shaking with fear, who are not trusting God by the lips of their very king, saying he will not ask for a sign, God says, Then here is my sign. It is the covenant sign from the beginning that now I give you progressively more information of. And it is Emmanuel. There is, of course, in this prophetic fulfillment that Matthew gives us of Isaiah 7, the hope that is contained that we must explore. That's our fourth point, the hope contained within the prophecy Both for the hearers of Isaiah's prophecy as well as those who would see it fulfilled in their day, there is hope. There is hope. For those in the days of Isaiah, it is a hope that all the tumultuousness of the Israelites was not the end, but that God is a covenant-keeping God. That which he promised in Genesis 3.15 and subsequent progressive revelation was coming to pass. And, I mean, not that we need to say this, but God 
cannot fail. And what they looked forward to came to be in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we now look back upon that reality of it, but it is not just that Jesus came and took on humanity, but what we see earlier in the fulfillment of the text, we think again of Matthew one twenty one: She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What does he come to do? He comes to save sinners like you and me from our sins. How does he do that? In the fulfillment of this prophecy, we see it. He comes, miraculously, puts on humanity, lives a life of perfection, fulfilling the law and the prophets. The law in the sense that he never disobeyed the prophets in the sense that he fulfilled prophecy. He never disobeyed. He was the perfect Lamb of God who was hung on a tree. He was born in humility, born of a virgin, born in scandal, born to a poor family. His birth was not proclaimed to kings and the religious leaders, but proclaimed to the lowest of low, the shepherds in a field. Proclaimed to pagan kings who were searching the stars as astrologists and God reveals it to them, signifying that this is not just for Israel, but for the world. And he dies in the place of sinners like you and me who deserve that justice that he received on the cross. Three days later, he rose victoriously over sin and death, conquering sin and death, absolutely crushing the head of of the serpent who is the father of lies and the father of death. Death, where is your sting? The grave, where is your victory? Abolished in the face of Christ. For those of us in Christ, we know this salvation because we have been united to the person who has saved his people from their sin. We are united to Christ by grace through faith and we rejoice in the remembrance of his first advent as we rejoice at the time of him bringing salvation. And we also rejoice in the hope of his second advent when he comes to redeem us fully from sin and brings us into his fulfilled kingdom. In this we rejoice. For those who are here and who have not trusted Christ, my call to you is to see what it means that God has kept His covenant. 600 years before the birth of Christ, Isaiah tells in multiple ways of the coming of Christ and the fulfillment is seen in the birth of Jesus upon which we focus this time of year. He did indeed come to save His people from their sin. And this is the hope I offer to you today. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ's finished work alone to be reconciled to God. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And after he dwelt upon the earth, lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserve, rose again and ascended, we've been studying in John, he sent his spirit. God is still with us. 
And we're awaiting by the Spirit's confirmation in our heart and His being the down payment, if you will, of that promise, Christ's return again. My call to you is to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Would you join me in prayer and then we will partake of the Lord's table together. Lord, um, we are reminded this morning of your great grace and mercy toward us in the fact that you are a covenant-keeping God. What you say you will do, you fulfill. And Lord, we believe that that fulfillment came in the Lord Jesus Christ who put on sinless humanity yet suffered the infirmities of the effects of the fall to the point of death. The plan, of course, being that death upon the cross to save his people from their sin. Lord, I pray that those of us who know you, even now as we come to your table, would rejoice in that. And even as we display the emblems of Christ's death and resurrection this morning at the table, may it be a testimony to those who do not know you who are in our midst, that they would see and hear that the Lord is good, that he saves sinners from his wrath, from their sin, and places them into his family and his kingdom. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.